0: Piki Mai Kake Mai and welcome to Our Changing World, Cour Alison Balance Tene. Later on, we'll hear about some of the myrtle rust research that's happening in New Zealand at the moment. But first up, who doesn't love bees and the honey they provide? The New Zealand bee industry is definitely on a roll, and William Ray is off to find out about a project that aims to help beekeepers find the best places to put their hives.
1: It's a club day for the Wellington Beekeepers Association and about a dozen would-be apiarists are getting an up-close look at a hive, some of them for the very first time.
2: Here's a drone, See you have a different size, all right? Big, big eyes so they can see the queen and the mating flight. This is the club's
1: treasurer, John Burnett. Today he's giving the group a crash course on what to look for while inspecting a hive.
2: All they do is wander around eating Yes. They're well, like a the to of the Yes. Day, right? <laughs> like, all, they have, all they need is TV in are right.
1: <laughs> this hive John's inspecting is one of 800,000 registered in 2017. That's a jump of more than 100,000 hives compared to the previous year. A lot of that jump is being driven by the booming value of Manuka honey, and there's a lot of interest in finding ways to gather that honey more effectively. That's why scientists, beekeepers, Māori landowners and software engineers are all working together to create something called the Honey Landscape Map. The dream is that this map will reveal the honey-producing potential of native stands of vegetation all around New Zealand, both on conservation land
3: and in private hands. That's the sort of concept we're working on at the moment. Um, But again, we are working in conjunction with a lot of the um, stakeholder and and end-user groups to make sure that that the product is sort of fit for their um, purpose as well.
1: This is Gary Houliston. He's the head of the honey mapping project at Manaki Whenua. And it's not just a map of which flowers are where. Gary says the model's going to incorporate things like the weather, flowering patterns, microclimates, so it can predict the best places to put a hive in real time.
3: Yeah, I mean, we are hoping to actually get into that kind of reactive space, if you like. Going back to some of the previous work we've done on things like mass seeding, that work is really about trying to predict events. And, and ideally for the industry, of course, um, how can we you know, determine whether we're, we're heading into a good season or not? And obviously the, the industry's come off the back of a couple of... Um, fairly poor seasons and obviously particularly as uh, as we um get more challenges through things like climate change and so on it, we do need the model to be um be responsive to some of this yeah because i mean what's a typical year now might not be a typical <laughs> year uh, a wee way down the track yes exactly yeah and and that's the thing and i mean i think that's what the industry's seen as of late there is there's kind of no such thing as a typical year anymore
1: so that's the dream but it's still early days yet because working out how much nectar and pollen a plant can produce under different conditions is a complicated business. So could you set the scene a little bit of like where we
4: are? Uh, we're at the University of Waikato, yeah, um, in the greenhouse compound. So there's a few uh, whole lot of plants and nettings that look like whole
1: these are all natives. natives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Stevie Noe. He's a PhD student at Waikato University and his role within the Honey Landscape Project is researching the honey-producing properties of one particularly valuable plant. We've got a
4: whole bunch of manuka plants and the cultivar Martinoi. I've actually never seen manuka flowering like that before. They're quite pretty, aren't they? Yes, yeah. I think these are Cultivated for their large pink flowers and abundant nectar...
1: Stevie Noe is trying to work out all the different factors which affect the nectar
4: and pollen yields of Manuka. Um, there are a lot of things that, that affect nectar flow and nectar chemistry. Um, soil fertility, temperature, sunlight, time of the day, where the plant is through its flowering season mm. can also affect nectar chemistry.
1: But even um, in the controlled setting of a greenhouse, nature often gets in stuff.
4: the way of Stevie's painstaking measurements. Yeah, the ants are are a bane to our nectar collection oh, efforts. So they, they, if you don't control the ants, they take all the nectar. So, right, okay. Yeah, You've got to be diligent with
1: control. Just as we're talking, Stevie's starting work on a new manuka experiment. We wander out of the greenhouse across the road to a scruffy bit of land on the outskirts of the campus where he's about to plant a whole new plot of manuka in bags full of sand.
4: Um, the sand has no nutrients, so we'll be able to feed our specific fertiliser mixes to the plants and see what the effect of withholding nitrogen or phosphorus are on manuka growth and flowering. Obviously
1: manuka is a major focus of the mapping project because it's so valuable to honey producers. But the final model has to include data on every major flowering plant in native bush, plus they need to account for introduced plants in that bush, not just the natives'. And for every plant, they need to understand all those things Stevie was mentioning: genetics, soil composition, sunshine requirements. To put it mildly, there's a lot of variables. Gary Hulistin again.
3: It sort of varies on in sort of several different dimensions, if you like. I mean, some of it is kind of climatically driven. So even if you've got similar suites of species in different parts of the country, you will get different um, resource production from from those areas. Um, Also, of course, the the different species produce very different amounts of of, uh, nectar and pollen. So actually, species like manuka are generally pretty hard work for bees. They don't produce a lot of nectar uh, or pollen. And, I mean, obviously you will get bees differentially foraging on different species as well. So uh, these are all things we have to try and take into account in the model to at least give us a a good estimate of the, you know, the sort of number of beehives you can run per area in different parts of the country. I mean, it
1: seems like an extremely complex model to put together. I mean, you know, I, mean, we, I think the model most people are familiar with is sort of climate models. And it, it almost seems like a similar scale of, of thing. There's so many different interconnecting factors to take into account.
3: I mean, at Banaki Fen, over the last uh, few years, we have actually had quite a lot of work already in, in this sort of area. So there's already been some modelling work done on nectar and pollen flow. We've also done a lot of work on sort of the climate effects of um, plant production, particularly work around things like mass seeding, which uh, a lot of people would have heard about. So we do have quite a track in, in some of this work. We're not sort of starting from ground zero, if you like, um, but absolutely getting to a, um, a model that will give us some predictability around uh, this is, a, is certainly a science challenge.
1: But the scientists don't have to gather all this data themselves. Gary says beekeepers all around the country are cooperating on the project.
3: Because, I mean, some of them have data sets that go back um, 40, 50 years.
1: And they're happy to share those with you? Because, I mean, it almost seems like the kind of thing that would be like
0: trade secrets.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Some are and some aren't. I mean, a, a lot of the ones that have been more forthcoming uh, are actually probably some of the real sort of old-school beekeepers, if you like, and a few of them sort of nearing retirement. So, I mean, their, their interest has probably become a little bit more academic than, uh, than commercial. So we've been fortunate to tap into a few of those people that have uh, been extremely helpful. But, yeah, of course, uh, a lot of other players in the industry aren't going to, to hand over a lot of their uh, what they see as their, you know, their trade IP, as it were.
1: If they can pull it off, the upside is potentially enormous,
3: particularly for
1: people like Victor Goldsmith.
5: I'm the general manager of Ngājipurau Miire Limited Partnership. Miire is a Māori name for honey. We are a collective of landowners on the east coast, um, Ngājipurau landowners.
1: Over the last few years, Te Tiriti or Waitangi settlement deals have transferred ownership of large amounts of farmland to iwi like Victor's. But because it's been difficult for Victor and his iwi to access the finance needed to develop that land, it started to revert to native bush.
5: The irony is that the land reverted back to scrub, and people used to look at us and you know call us marginal landowners. And then, as the Manuka um, honey and the science they sat behind that drove the value of that particular product, you know the opportunities started to come about.
1: Victor and Nati Perot have partnered up with Manaki Whenua, hoping the mapping project will give them a more detailed understanding of the value of their land for honey production.
5: We've got gold sitting on our hills, which we need to look at differently, hence the reason why we're involved in the honey landscape. I use these little catch cries like, the key is the tree. You know, there's a lot of science and research being done on the honey, but not a lot of science and research being done on the actual resource itself. And so when I ask very basic science questions around is my Manuka strain different from others around the country. We had to send interns around the country to get, gather the leaf sample to do the DNA testing, and now we've proven that the East Coast is different from Northland in terms of DNA, which is quite important for me from a provenance perspective when I'm starting to look at how I might market my honey. I've also got Western science that supports that, but I've got a rich story that sits behind that in terms of our cultural association, with Maanaka in particular. So that's one of the work streams.
1: It's not all business, though. Victor's getting his family involved in the mapping project, both to reconnect them with the land and to get them involved in science.
5: My daughter was the first one, you know, because she was finished university, and it's a good little summer job to go, go around the country and start collecting um, Maanaka leaf samples and um, tagging the tree and GPSing and all that sort of stuff. So, And then uh, we had my grandnephew involved, um, Had my stepson involved, had my niece involved. Uh, People think that, you know, might be a little bit of nepotism there, but it's it's about succession planning as far as I'm concerned because there was no other people that we knew of at that time that would be able to go out and, and have, you know, have the capacity to go out and do the work.
1: Landowners like Victor sometimes have a tricky relationship with beekeepers. Mostly it's a mutually beneficial relationship but there are some bad actors.
5: The greed factors come in and people placing hives on our boundaries, which is another reason why we're involved in the Honey Landscape Project to sort of manage that beekeeping pressure.
1: Victor's hoping the Honey Landscape map will help clamp down on unscrupulous beekeepers using Manuka on his land without his permission. It's called boundary riding, putting lots of hives next door to someone's property to harvest the flowers on their land.
5: And I'm in discussion with the regional council and the Gisborne District Council to look at introducing potentially a bylaw once the research has been finished, so that we can go back to some of these unethical practices and behaviours that have been displayed by people in the industry to say that you've got far too many hives on your land, you know, so why have you got 100 hives when our data, our research suggests you should only have 10?
1: And is that a fairly critical part of getting a bylaw like that passed, is sort of having the science to underpin it, sort of saying, this area of land can only support this number of hives.
5: Yeah, I mean, that's what the council wants.
1: Overstocking and boundary riding isn't just a problem for the commercial honey industry.
5: Mm. Hey, get off my microphone, Bee.
1: Back at the Wellington Beekeepers Association, John Burnett says it's seriously affecting hobby beekeepers. Many members have lost hives because there just isn't enough food to go around all the bees.
2: Uh, Why Amata, for example, the coast road has, uh, last I heard, 600 beehives, which is far more than the area can actually sustain mm. and therefore overstocking and therefore um, poaching, if you could call it that, on each other's territory not that that's quite the right uh, uh, wording, but yeah, it's becoming increasingly a problem and ethics seem to have gone out the window
1: John's hoping the honey landscape map can help address the problem
2: I often try and get the uh, sure Quality who would look after the api register to tell me how many hives are in a certain area, but they're very, very uh, reluctant to divulge that sort of information because of privacy regulations. So you really don't know if you're encroaching on somebody else's territory or there are too many hives in a certain area even now. Hmm. And some sort of coordinated data uh, base would be a good idea. It would be nice to know that uh, there are already several hundred in this particular area, therefore there's no point in me putting in the same area.
1: Mm. Yeah. So if it linked it up with that with that kind of database, that might be quite handy. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It would. Yep, yeah. It would.
0: Yeah.
2: Mm. The plan
1: is to have the honey landscape map up and running within the next five years. But Gary Hulleston says there's a hell of a lot of work left to do.
3: It's really getting some of that um, nectar and pollen data together. There's a lot of lot of emphasis at the moment on manuka, and, and we're certainly. Made some um, good headway on manuka, but we are very interested in other native honey-producing species. So some of that work is is kind of very much still still to come, or or, or just kicking off now. Really, we're hoping to have um, a sort of preliminary iteration of uh, the model in the next sort of twelve months or so to test with some of the stakeholders, uh, and then we'll be looking to further refine that before the end of the project. Thanks, Gary, and a big
0: thanks to Gary Holliston from Manaki Whenua Landcare Research. Stevie No from Waikato University, Victor Goldsmith from Natipuro Meri Limited Partnership, and John Burnett from the Wellington Beekeeping Association. And thanks to producer William Ray. Kaita Fakarkwaiki Tortatoto Ahurihuri, Hehotaka e Panak Papa Tuanuku Tāngaroa, Merangi Nui. I'm Alison Balance. And now on our changing world. Manuka is one of the species that people are worrying about when it comes to myrtle rust. Just over a year ago, in late May 2017, we learned that myrtle rust had been detected for the first time on mainland New Zealand. Tiny orange spores of this invasive plant rust had blown across from Australia. Infected plants began to turn up across the North Island and the top of the South Island. MPI, the Ministry for Primary Industries, leapt into action to try and eradicate myrtle rust. The Department of Conservation began urgently collecting seeds from the 40 or so native myrtle species, including mānuka, to put in a seed bank as an insurance policy. In April 2018, MPI admitted that efforts to control myrtle rust had failed. The new focus was to be community management and research into the disease, which continues to spread. As of last month, 776 infected properties had been found, including five sites on conservation land. Scion is one of a number of organisations collaborating on better understanding myrtle rust and its future impacts. I'm off to Rotorua to meet Katrin Webb, Becky Ganley, Julia Suato, and Jules Freeman to find out what they are doing.
4: So Scion is involved in several projects. The one that we have the most involvement in is a project that really looks at ways of surveillance for Moodle rust And that is looking on the ground surveillance, but also looking at new technologies like um, UAV surveillance or using satellite data. It's always a challenge, obviously, because myrtle rust is hard to spot. So you will have to look at different technologies, different sensors, different cameras. And that is the piece of work that we're looking at. We're we're sussing out the options at the moment, and then we'll go into more detail about what what we can do. So anything we will do is a big learning for New Zealand and MPI that then can be applied and hopefully help with a faster reaction next
6: time something will happen. It's not just looking to see if the pathogen's there, but in the future looking to see what kind of effects it's had on there. So you start to pick up the dieback, which we'll expect to see in a few years, and so then that's that health monitoring that goes on of what are the actual impacts of myrtle rust on uh, New Zealand native mutaceae and exotic mutaceae here as well. At the moment we know its impacts on individual plants, but this is looking at perhaps wider ecosystem impacts. Yes, yes. Are we losing tracks of pahutakawa or ramarama, or are the forests actually quite healthy? And so that ability to remote sense in particular over the native forest is going to be really critical for the future. So what are you doing in particular here at Scion, Becky? A lot of the work that we're doing is looking at the susceptibility of the New Zealand mutaceae species. And so we've collected a whole lot of seed from throughout New Zealand, from a variety of different species. They can be native, it can be exotic mutaceae, and they're going to get tested against the pathogen. And that's the critical first step, is what is the host resistance in there? And so finding out whether some species are highly susceptible, moderately susceptible, or actually have quite a good tolerance to the pathogen. And that will be really helpful for making informed management decisions later on when you've got to decide, we've got 30 mutaceae in New Zealand, which ones do we look after, which ones do we target, which ones do we spend the time on, and that will be a really critical tool for that. The Murtasi species that you're dealing with then, the one that's ones that you've been collecting the seeds for, that you're growing up to see how resistant they are, what species are they? So we're focusing on some of the ones I think most people would know. So there's Ramarama, which a lot of people have in their backyards. So it's got a, a purpley-green leaf on it. Um, there's Manuka and Kanuka, Pahutakawa, uh, and also looking at sort of a variety of different ones as well that might be a little bit more localised in their distribution. Are you concentrating just on the native ones, or are you looking at some of the exotic ones as well? We're also looking at the exotics, so eucalyptus. Uh, there's a strain of myrtle rust, which has caused a lot of impacts on eucalyptus overseas. We don't have that strain in New Zealand, but that's clearly a really important strain for us to test overseas. But we are looking across all of the natives. So we also have Fijoa. Uh, we suspect that Fijoa will be pretty tolerant because it comes from from the same country that the pathogen originates from. Which is South America. South America yes, yeah. yeah. So Fiji is native to Uruguay and Brazil and both areas are where myrtle rust is present. So we're in a nursery here at Cyan. what have we got on the, the tables next to us? So these are some of the plants that have been collected so the seed has been collected from different areas across New Zealand and the a portion of the seeds was Brought here to the nursery, we grew it up to see the germination rate. The germination rate of the native mutase is actually quite low, which is quite concerning when you think about the ecological impacts of myrtle rust. So if it's going to get hit by a pathogen and it has a low germination rate, that could be a big issue for the future. And there's five different species, a plant species in here, and so some of the seed is going to be tested against the strain that we have present in New Zealand, but there's at least nine or more different strains out there. So what happens if we get another strain that comes to the country? Uh, Some of the seed has already been sent to South Africa to be tested against a strain that they have there, and we're going to send another portion of the seed to Uruguay to test against those. So at the end of it we'll have this picture of how resilient this material will be against at least three different strains of the pathogen. And so when you say you're testing it against a pathogen, you're basically just exposing it to the pathogen and seeing what happens? Artificially inoculating it. So once the trees have grown to a certain size, you can prepare the myrtle rust spores and you can put it onto the tree and then you can measure the size of the lesions or count the the lesions and how much damage it actually causes. And so for some plants, if they're tolerant, there'll be either very little or no infection, but for other ones that are really susceptible, the whole tree uh, could be covered in myrtle rust spores. Is that an issue for you at the moment, working with myrtle rust in the lab like that? We don't actually work with it in the lab. The seed that's going to be tested against the strain we have in New Zealand is actually going to be sent to Australia. Uh, So at this point in time, we can't propagate the pathogen in New Zealand. I mean, it's out there and it's around, but we're not doing anything that would actually increase the amount of pathogen inoculum that we have here. So what are you going to do with all these plants then, uh, so these ones we're going to keep them and we're hoping to be able to put them out in a field trial and this is actually Julia who's going to be doing that work. So with these ones here we're hoping to put them out in the field and have a matching set in New Zealand which has been exposed to field environments and uh, again in different locations in New Zealand. So we've got that comparison toward, uh, against the overseas strains and the artificial inoculation. So what happens if you put it in the North Island or, somewhere at the top of the North Island and it gets infected, is the level of infection going to be different there, say if you have it in Rotorua and you put in the materials here? That's what Julia is going to be working on. Now I'm interested
0: because you have experience with metal rust overseas, don't you, in New Caledonia?
7: Mm. So metal rust came first in New Caledonia in 2013 and we rapidly discovered that the disease was widespread across New Caledonia archipelago. So it's really a threat for our biodiversity because it was found on 67 endemic Myrtaceae species. And we also recorded three deaths in natural ecosystems and also in nurseries. We also recorded miatase from six uh, different native plant communities in New Caledonia, including the sclerophyll forest, which is the most endangered plant community in New Caledonia.
0: I don't know a lot about New Caledonia's vegetation, but I do know that it's very distinctive.
7: Yeah, it's very distinctive. It's considered as a biodiversity hotspot.
0: So it was already quite widespread once it was detected, when it was first detected in New Caledonia. Yeah,
7: it was first detected in um, March 2013, and one month later... It was already widespread, so we suppose that the disease was here in New before the first detection. And um, in New we've got warm temperature, and conductive uh, climate condition for the spores, so, yeah, it widespread pretty easily.
0: Any idea how it got there?
7: No, we don't know at the moment, but we suppose it's uh, through wind dispersal from Australia.
0: Now, speaking of Australia, Jules, that's where you've been working with metal rust. So tell me a bit about the work you were doing there, because you've been looking at that issue of resistance.
8: Yes, that's correct. We've been looking at a lot of different ways to dissect the variation, the genetic variation in resistance, both within and between species in Australia. So we have some seven to 800 eucalypt species in Australia. And to put that in context, New Zealand has... Uh, roughly 27 native species of myrtaceae and in Australia yeah, in the eucalyptus alone we have far more and, and some 2,250 species of myrtaceae so the problem's a little bit different but we have a lot of closely related species to New Zealand and a broadly similar climate so yeah I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned.
0: So how are the eucalypts responding to the myrtle rust? Are, you, are they all being equally susceptible? Are you seeing quite a bit of variation?
8: Uh, That's a really good question. Yes there's a lot of variation. I think there's a lot of variation between species and also within species which is a really key point. Yeah we're finding many species certainly where we've had a a comprehensive examination we're finding there is um, genetic variation which bodes really well.
0: So how do you go about determining which genes might be the important ones and making one plant resistant and another plant not resistant. How how do you go about that?
8: Well, there's there's all sorts of techniques and we're really just scratching the surface. We have a genome sequence for eucalypt, so that helps a lot. And, yeah, there are various techniques, including QTL mapping, which I do, where we work out the broad parts of the genome and the location number and magnitude of effect of, of those regions of the genome that are having an influence on variation and susceptibility, and then there's down to other techniques where you can get down to individual genes using techniques such as association, genetic mapping. The early indications are that it's a really polygenic trait. It looks like there's, there's a lot of different genes. Once you start to look at a, a broad collection of genetic material, there are many different genes and... As I said, we're just scratching the surface, but we've done some comparative studies where we're looking at the genes that have been mapped from different eucalypt species and finding within species and between species it seems there's a lot of variation in the genes that influence variation in susceptibility. And my idea is that there's unlikely to be a, a really quick fix from molecular genetics. Certainly we're unlikely to be able to go in and, and just find major genes and, and use them for selection across a broad, broad range of germplasm.
0: So it's not as simple as going, fantastic, it's one gene that's the problem, so we'll just breed that out or we'll breed this gene in? It's yeah, probably-
8: certainly that's my opinion. In some settings, like where you have a, a small collection, say a breeding program with a limited genetic base, but I think it's unlikely to be the case where you look at broader germplasm collections.
6: So in Australia, it took about four years until they started to see localised extinctions of species happening. Now they're talking about full extinctions of plants in their native host ranges, and they're also, this is eight years on, looking at... Species which they thought were moderately susceptible, they're actually really concerned about those. So we've got this, you know, we've got this understanding of what it could be like in New Zealand, and that's the part where it's critical now that we don't give up hope. So yes, we have myrtle rust, and people will sometimes say to me, "Oh, it's here. There's nothing else you can do. No, you know, let's not worry about it." But there is a lot that we can do. But it's what are we going to do? And you know, what are we going to put in place to make sure it happens? And so that's where I think it's really critical that we do have a long-term management plan and that it is it's cohesive across the country because if we look at some of the different options that we have, in four years' time we might not be looking at localised extinctions and we might not have to be in eight years' time thinking about full extinction of plant species in their host range, but we have to act now and we also have to make sure that we maintain the work along the years and that it doesn't fall off as a priority that we, you know, that we put a concerted effort in. Thanks, Becky. That was Becky Ganley. We also heard from Katrin Webb,
0: Jules Freeman and Julia Suwato, and they are all with Scion. If you'd like to know more about Myrtle Rust, what it is and the impact it's having around the world, I'll post to an Our Changing World feature on the disease on our web page, rnz.co.nz slash You can sign up for our weekly email newsletter while you're there. The link for that is at the bottom of the page. You can also keep up to date with us on Facebook and Twitter at RNZ Science. Thanks for your company, but for now it's goodnight from me, Alison Balance. Kia pai tōpō.